Well, there's every good chance that you have never heard the name Percival Everett before. But you have most certainly used his invention. Percival Everett was a 19th century inventor who lived in England. And he is credited with being the inventor of the world's first vending machine. The first one that Everett built was a rather simple device. He put it in a railway station in London, and it simply dispensed postcards and stationery to the people who would travel the trails, the trains. But it was met with such popularity that eventually Everett started building vending machines all over the railway system of England. And 130 years later, his invention is still around, a very common part of our everyday culture and society, including one like this, donated to us by a company in East Tampa called Creative Vending Services. Brought it over here for our sermon today to remind us that vending machines are a common everyday part of life. We use them to vend everything from candy to cappuccinos to electronics. But little could have Everett ever imagined that 130 years later, after he built his first machine, we would be using vending machines in a way that he never could have dreamt, in a purpose that is much more dangerous and much more detrimental to our lives than he could have ever envisioned. Because my suspicion is that most of us, if not all of us, have used the vending machine as our favorite image of God. And that image has become singularly harmful and detrimental to our faith journey in a way that Percival Everett could never have imagined. And it's so harmful to our theology that all of us not only have done it in our lives, but we can't stop doing it. We can't stop seeing God in this way. And isn't it true that sometimes the most harmful parts of our lives are those things that are most sneaky and most subversive, especially when it comes to bad theology? And if you, if you look deep inside yourself, if you are guilty of that, just as I am, then this sermon series for the next several weeks is exactly what we need. The most recent book to most accurately diagnose the problem that I have described is a powerful book by a Princeton professor and United Methodist pastor named Kenda Creasy-Dean who wrote a book not too long ago called Almost Christian, What the Faith of American Teenagers is Telling Us in the Church. Its premise was simple enough. Researchers spent a lot of time interviewing teenagers in the American church today to describe and to discover the faith that teenagers have in our culture today. Would you like to know what the researchers discovered about the content of teenagers' faith today? Well, first the good news. Teenagers have a faith today. That kind of goes against our instincts. 
We sort of think that teenagers, by and large, have completely walked away from anything religious or anything faithful, but that is not true, according to these researchers. Teenagers have not walked away from the faith. They have not shied away from connections to a local church or identifications with one faith tribe or another or connections to a denomination. By and large, they still connect intrinsically to the faith that was given to them by their parents. That's the good news. The bad news? Well, there's a lot of bad news. It turns out that the faith that they do claim today is an utterly watered-down, diluted, inoffensive, sterilized version of true Christianity. The technical theological term that this book gives to this kind of theological subset that I'm talking about has a long, complicated three-word phrase. It's called moralistic, therapeutic deism. It's taken in three parts. The first part suggests that this faith that teenagers ascribe to today simply espouses that our primary job here on earth is to be nice. That's all we got to do. Be good people. Be decent people. Treat people fairly and nicely. That's our ultimate primary purpose. That's what this version of the faith tells them. Be moral. That's what the moralistic part suggests. What about God in this faith system? Well, God exists, and God is active, and God is real. But in this faith system that teenagers have bought into today, God doesn't really participate in the everyday, moment-by-moment lives of people. God is virtually disconnected from our everyday existence. Teenagers believe that we can't actually hear God's voice. And every time teenagers hear about someone who can hear God's voice, they automatically raise suspicion that that's, that person is some kind of religious fanatic. Teenagers believe that they can't actually know the will and the way of God. And anytime somebody claims that they can, that person is automatically labeled as some kind of religious nut or extremist. And so... God is perceived essentially in a deist fashion, disconnected from everyday experience. But when God does act, then God is there to give us what we ask for. This is the therapeutic part of moralistic therapeutic deism. That in those times when we need assistance in times of trouble, or guidance when we are trying to figure out our future, or hope in the midst of a bad situation, or healing in the midst of our physical infirmities, or social status, or fame, or money when we're low in society, or when we need wisdom and guidance to figure out what to do in the future. All we have to do is go to God And God, when God does act in our lives, is there to give us what we ask for. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. 
So what does that do to participation in the Christian life, according to teenagers today? Well, it completely revolutionizes the way we look at the spiritual disciplines. Prayer, for example. Prayer in this belief system is nothing more than doing this. Finding the right change to get from God what we need. Reading the scriptures is nothing more than this. Push the right combination of buttons, and when we get what we need, at the moment we need it from God. Connect to a church, be part of a faith community, give of our money and our means and our talents to the church. Nothing more than doing the right combinations of actions and activities to get what we need at the time we need it. And the sum result of all this is that the kind of Christianity that young people have bought into today demands very, very little of themselves. If God is nothing more than a gigantic vending machine who is virtually distant from our experience, and if all we really have to do in life is be nice, and that's our way of getting into heaven, then why bother investing our lives in commitment to the church. In fact, that's why teenagers today, instead of walking away from the faith, have done something even worse to the faith. They've sterilized it. To where they look at Christianity, they look at religious commitment, and they shrug their shoulders, and they offer a big, giant, collective whatever. But that's not the worst news of all. Would you like to know the worst part of this diagnosis? Because when you ask the question, where teenagers, where young people learned to adopt a belief system like moral therapeutic deism, the answer is, they learned it from you. And they learned it from me. They learned it from every adult in their lives who offered a sterilized, watered down, unoffensive, non-threatening, non-invasive version of Christianity that was rendered so impotent that it became inconsequential to us and therefore inconsequential to the young adults today. They learned it from their parents who practiced a kind of faith that was stripped of passion and zeal and risk-taking under the belief that any time a religious person does something passionate or zealous, we could simply label them as extremist or fanatical and chalk them away as someone that we didn't want to have any part of. They learned it from churches like this one. When people like us get together and share our prayer concerns, most of the time, the content of our prayer concerns that we lift up have to do with physical illnesses and diseases and death and our own mortality. Not that there's anything wrong with that that is an important part of our prayerful journey together, but when it's exclusively filled with illnesses and mortality then it suggests to our young people and reinforces to us that God is nothing more than an emergency room doctor. 
They learned it from preachers like me. In fact, some of them learned it actually from me. From preachers who have been so saturated with moralistic, therapeutic deism that it's affected the way that we've preached sermons, that we have fallen to the temptation of making sermons nothing more than an exploration of how to live your best life now, of how to have the right combinations and the right kind of life to have the most successful marriage, the best family, to raise your kids the right way, entire sermon series built on how to help you live the best possible life you can right now, to find the career of your dreams, how to find your purpose in life, how to live the way you really feel like you should live. And whole churches and whole preachers and whole book series are published today, reinforcing this idea that God is nothing more to us than someone that can give us the best life possible. I'm guilty of it. Preachers like me all over the place are guilty of it. And what it suggests is that if we simply do certain things, if we follow certain disciplines, If we find the right change and push the right buttons and subscribe to a version of Christianity that is necessary, then all of a sudden what will drop in from the sky are the blessings that we need. Moral therapeutic deism is vending machine theology, and we're all guilty of it. So what do we do about it? What do we do about this most pervasive, and some would say most prevalent heresy in the contemporary church today. Well, I have an antidote today. I have a solution that I'd like to offer you. It's too big and too comprehensive to flesh out on one Sunday, so we're going to spend the next few months on it. And the antidote is this. Three simple words. Wesley, covenant, prayer. In August of 1755, a young preacher named John Wesley was working with a gathered community of people outside London in a small church preparing for a worship service that would have 1,800 people in attendance. And he sensed at that time in 18th century London, that there was a prevalence of a version of moral therapeutic deism, and he wanted to do something about it to help these parishioners recalibrate their theologies and rework their perspectives on God and the Christian life. And so he sat down in preparation for this service and wrote a very special prayer. He poured his entire heart and spirit into the careful wording of this prayer so that when it would be revealed, there would be no mistake about our role in the Christian life and that it would remind us that God does not belong to us. God does not work for us. We do not control God. We belong to God. And on August 11th, 1755, in a small church outside London, in front of 1,800 worshipers, the Wesley Covenant Prayer was born. 
And it said this. I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for thee or or laid aside for thee. Exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full or let me be empty. Let me have all things let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine, and I am thine. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. Since that moment when Wesley debuted this prayer in 1755, it has since become one of the most significant spiritual prayers, not only in the history of Methodism, but in the history of the Christian church. Methodists have used it often throughout their congregational life, but other denominations have used it too, simply because of its power to recalibrate our theologies and remind us that God is not there simply to serve us. We are called to a passionate, risk-taking, and life-emptying commitment to Jesus Christ. And that's why as we enter into a new fall season of congregational life together, I can think of no better sermon series that will prepare us for our future together than to dig deeply into the content of this prayer. So every week, we're going to take it line by line. There's every good chance that by the end of this series, you're going to be sick of this prayer. And I'm okay with that. Because at the moment that we're sick of this prayer is the moment we're going to start living this prayer. Because I believe that the Wesley Covenant prayer for Methodists is a singular antidote to the kind of theology that is so subversive that it's affecting all of us and people all throughout the church today and even the people of God who were here thousands of years before us. That's the whole context of the Isaiah passage that Sarah read for us moments ago. That Isaiah burst onto the scene at a time when the people of God living in Judah were all being affected by moralistic, therapeutic deism because they believed that the God that they were worshiping was simply there to give them things like the blessing of the temple, or the stability of the monarchy, or military victories, or the blessings and the fruitfulness of the land. And all they had to do was go through the right rituals, do the right sacrifices, attend the temple, observe the feasts and the festivals, and then God would dump upon them all of these blessings, which by and large was true until the Babylonians came on board. Babylonian Empire rose to power 
and destroyed their temple, killed their kings, took them away from their land, destroyed their armies, and all of a sudden, their vending machine God wasn't working. And all they could do in the midst of exile was kick the side of their theology, wondering what had broken. And that's when a prophet like Isaiah came on board and said, it's not working because this was the wrong theology to begin with. God never belonged to you. God was never someone you could control. And that's when the beautiful words of the scripture reading burst into the ears of the Israelites. God said, I have redeemed you. I have called you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. The Israelites needed to hear that. And we need to hear that too. Which brings us to one final point, to one other object that's in the sanctuary this morning. You might have missed it. You might have ignored it because it's here every Sunday, whether you notice it or not. I'm pretty sure you noticed this when you came in. But you probably never even noticed the object that's here every single Sunday that is the greatest antidote to the vending machine theology that we have. And it's up here every single Sunday. And it's right here. The baptismal font is a central part of our belief in our theology because it is in and through the waters of baptism that God first welcomes us into the life of faith and we first hear the words in our ears that God has claimed us, that we belong to God. God does not belong to us, and we don't even belong to ourselves. And every time someone's baptized in this church, it's an opportunity for you and for me to remember our own baptism. We say that every time, but you know what that really means? It's a time for us to recommit our lives to Jesus and say we are not going to settle for a watered-down faith anymore because the waters of baptism won't let us. Because we don't belong to ourselves. And our agenda doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is that because we're baptized, we belong to God. And we have to spend every single day of our lives surrendering ourselves and our will and our lives over to the purposes of God. So it's very appropriate that as we start this new sermon series together, that it includes in a few moments an opportunity for you to come forward, to touch the water, to say, I do, literally, again, out loud, in response to those same baptismal vows that were taken on your behalf when you were first baptized. And for you to say right now in a public way, we're tired of living with vending machine theology.
we're offering ourselves back to God boldly. And we're not going to live a faith that is non-intrusive, non-threatening, comfortable, and sterilized anymore. And so part of your invitation to come forward will include an invitation to come to the altar rail, if you wish. And before you return to your seats, we'll give you an opportunity to pick up one or more of these pieces that will be your guiding roadmap along the next several weeks. These beautiful pieces contain the full text of the Wesley Covenant Prayer, and we invite you to take one or more of these for yourselves and for your friends. The first is a business card size rendition of the prayer that's got our logo on the front and the full text of the prayer on the back. This is a bookmark that you can use with the full text of the prayer and use it for your Bible or your favorite spiritual reading. And this is a larger version that you can use to display in front of you anywhere you will, where you will see it regularly to remind you of the words of the prayer. Pick one up if you'll use it. Pick one up if you will commit to memorizing this prayer over the next two months, and you will be astonished at how the words of this prayer will correct bad theology. Friends, we are no longer our own. We belong to God. And as a way of sealing our commitment today, and as a way of beginning our series together, there's no better way to conclude this sermon than with the recitation of this powerful prayer. So at this time, I invite you to stand. Direct your attention to the words on the screen as we say these words together. Let us pray. I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for thee or laid aside for thee, exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine, and I am thine, so be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. Please be seated.